Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We specialize in helping clinicians apply a BPS <laughs> approach within the constraints of private practice. So we have both one-on-one and group mentoring options for guidance to help you implement a person-centered approach and feel more confident amongst the uncertainty that comes with clinical practice. So if interested, reach out at tkex.org. So today I have from across the globe, our special guest today, Tris Adenbra. He is a massage therapist with quite a comprehensive education background, super passionate about evidence-informed practice for patients experiencing pain. So Tris, thanks for making the time for us, mate. Oh, my absolute pleasure. It's a lovely sunny day here. Thank you for having me. This is a very civilized way to start the week as well. It's Monday morning. It's a lovely Monday, lovely start. And um, so I've heard a bit of your story and an amazing rant as well in a, in a podcast. But for those <laughs> who perhaps don't know you, what's your story? Oh, well, I, I uh, in the 90s, I did a psychology degree. Um, and then I became a software developer. So I don't have a... a career path that makes any sense and I don't think I'm employable so I, I prefer to work for myself um I then had a crack at a PhD in cognitive psychology around 2007 or 8 which I didn't finish uh, it wasn't the right time there's a lot of personal reasons um but I kept the fascination and then in 2014 I did a sports massage remedial massage type course and then I fell into crisis um, because I, I really wanted to do the work and I just wasn't convinced I'd been taught very useful stuff. And I think when I started, it was around that time, 2014, that I read Adam Meekin's post, which is probably quite well known, called There's No Skill in Manual Therapy. I hadn't even qualified when I read that little beauty. Um, and also around then, I discovered Paul Ingram's um, PainScience.com, which I'm sure you'll agree is a masterpiece. And um, so the first year of practice was just was just confusion. You know, I was I was not pleased about what I was saying to clients. I was not convinced I was fully armed with with good information. So I just went on a bender of of as many courses as I could that for people who seem to be talking the right language. So I did Adam's course. I did Greg Layman's. I did a weekend of Mick Thacker's, uh, Tom Goon, Mike Stewart, Laura Mosley. Um, I did two of Peter O'Sullivan's three days, which was probably the biggest, most important influence on how I started thinking about practice. Particularly, I was at that point, I don't know if you can relate to this, where I really loved the idea of biopsychosocial. Okay. I, I you know, you, it feels right, it sits well, but you got that question, you go, what do you say? Like what what do you say to the person in front of you? What what actually comes out of your mouth? And at least when I saw Peter O'Sullivan, you go, Oh, well, you could do that, and you can say that, and you can do, and it was such a revelation. And that really, really helped me out. And I think. Then you have the problem that you can't do him. <laughs> so you, you sort of do for a bit and then go, if you ever hear um, Paul McCambridge tells a cracking story 
um, about how he asked the question you asked, which is, what's your story? You ask the patient, what's the story? And you wait out the silence. And he said he waited and waited and waited. And eventually this patient just swore at him. Um, so, I, and I love that because it's, you know, you have to, you got to find your own voice and all this. Anyway, one thing and another, I, um, I completed a master's degree in pain management at Cardiff University, finishing last year. Um, and now here I am. I work for myself um, in a few little clinics locally and from home. And um, uh, we're about to start teaching um, with them, collaborating with some other people, but I can kind of get into that a bit later. So, yes, that's, that's my that's story. Awesome. Can absolutely relate to the feeling of not knowing enough and wanting to dive into as many courses, like literally all the courses available that you mm. possibly can get your hands on. Um, and the the value of seeing some examples through Sir Peter O'Sullivan's courses, I think mm. that's probably the biggest value that that I took from it. And oh wow! And uh, very curious about your psychology background and how that influences or how that has um, shaped your approach. Mm. What have you kind of taken? We might start there. Yeah. Well, the. Because I was kind of more into cognitive psychology, probably the very first thing is when I when I was first introduced to this idea that, and I know it's still debated, that, that pain is or could be a perception. Having done the PhD I was on was on visual perception. So just the idea that the top-down traffic is completely interfering with the bottom-up traffic if you follow what I'm saying, that that was easy. I was very comfortable with that. So I didn't have to um, break my brain on that one. And, 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 and you know, I'm aware that we're still, that's not, <laughs> it's not a done deal with that. I get that. Um, but the idea, um, the idea was okay. Um, and I think actually one of the things that's, it took me years to realize this, that the training you get in research methods and statistics uh, undergrad psychology in the UK is really good. I mean, we had two, three hours a week for two years of the degree. So, so and, and I didn't realize that that was above average. <laughs> so, so I was kind of quite good at critiquing papers and critiquing research. And so when, so really probably why I started following all the right people was because when someone talks about research in a way that they understand it, you can just tell. You can tell by the language they use that they are appreciating the complexity. They're not making grand assertions. They're navigating it again. Well, we know this, but not that. And there's some promising stuff here, but it's low quality. You know, that kind of um, richer understanding. I think the more you are able to perceive that, then you have a better chance of knowing who's talking, who's talking good, good stuff. So, um, kind of help but the other big thing of course was um you know if you, you go to any psychology department and ask for the cognitive psychologist and ask questions like how good are we at making decisions how accurate is our perception how good is our memory and they'll go it's, it's it's awful it's just terrible and that's what i uh 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 like that's the sort of thing that gets really interesting is that when we are trying to think in any clinical situation, we are completely plagued by perceptual errors, memory errors, reasoning errors, and 
and things like that. So um, being uncertain um, comes easy, I think. It's like a, that humility, I think, is, is what's really easy to, to sense and, and hear from the way someone approaches a topic or explains science or our current consensus on, on topics. So it sounds like it was an easy transition for you. You've kind of yeah. been across that, uh, that language before. So when it came to pain, it was easier, I guess, than if you hadn't yeah. had that, that background knowledge. Cause I've, I would always have some conversations with colleagues about how much, how much uh, psychology or counseling skills we should start and introduce as mm. musculoskeletal therapists mm. in our own training and how applicable and relevant that is. Yeah, that's the other side of it, I think, is 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 the psychotherapy side of it, which I'm not actually that clued up on. I some a you know, little bit, but that yeah, that has to. <laughs> we know any good multidisciplinary team would have a psychologist you know in in, in an in an ideal world um i suppose i was i probably come forth more from the cognitive mechanics so if you go right down to just your most basic perception of the world um you know what you see in front of you is not really that accurate and that's really easy to demonstrate um with some some with straightforward experiments um so you know, for example, if you if you uh, there's a there's a phenomenon called change blindness, where if you give you two images and I flick between them, and there's a massive uh, change in the picture, you can't spot it between the two images. So you, you, it turns out that that rich experience you have of this massive visual field isn't nearly as detailed as you feel it is. Does that make sense? So you um, so just on the most perceptual level. There's this massive top-down traffic that's telling us and making the, it's constructing the world. You know, our brain constructs the world, so so it, it, it it's it's very easily readily filled. Our memory is also uh, desperately flawed. You know, we we um, again simple experiments can demonstrate that um, the way we there was a there was a little little beauty. I think it was in the fifties where you uh, it was around the time when there was a lot of eyewitness testimony research going on you know is that familiar have you come across that which is you know where you you have a video of a car crash and then you ask a bunch of people of participants who've watched it how fast the car's going did you see broken glass on the road and you completely influence the answer just by saying when they collided, when they crashed, when they smashed, when you just change the one word, the estimate of the speed goes up. If you say smash, they'll claim there was glass in the road when there wasn't. So it's completely, your brain is making up a reality <laughs> that you think is true, but is really easily fooled. So I love keeping these things close, you know, keep, keep, keep. Uh, and I doubt myself and I, you know, I remember things from when I'm young and think, yeah, is that right? Is that accurate? Or did I just... You ever dreamt something and thought, did I dream that? Was that real? You know, it's, it's that. It's really fuzzy. And um, I think we're both fans of the cognitive bias stuff. You know, that's, I think that's, um, that's the most 
uh, I think that's the most informative, isn't it, in how we how we think about problems. So we know we have terrible confirmation bias. We remember things that fit with our world. We forget the things that don't fit with our world. Um, survivorship bias, I think, is particularly useful when we think about our clinic. And have you ever come across that? There's a, it's a great little story from, it's World War II, and uh, Spitfire planes are going over and fighting, and they're coming back, and what they do is they make a note and record where every bullet hole is. Have you heard of this? Um, and then you, you have one master drawing, and you collate all the bullet holes onto that master drawing, and then you can see where they're getting shot. And the plan was to reinforce the areas that you're getting shot the most. And then a really, as I forget the name, is this really smart mathematician. So, well, no, you, you need to reinforce the bits that aren't getting shot because they're the planes that are not coming back. So that's the survivorship bias. It's it's the missing data that's skewing your perception. It's the missing data that's giving you an incorrect conclusion. So when you, um, so I think this is a this is this is why testimonials are the worst form of data you could possibly imagine. So somebody phones you up. Why? Well, there's some idea that they think you can help. So they go, well, I'll phone that person. And then they book in, then they pay money. So they're invested and they want this to work. I mean, there's variations. They did some, some just uh, doing it because they were told. A lot of people come because their partner told them to go. Um, and there's just several more stages where you go, oh, well, I feel better. So it was definitely that thing you did when it might not have been. We know it could have been you know, natural history, regression to the mean, all the other explanations, which seems to be why someone gets better. And then at the end, the ones that are really happy, some of them will write a testimonial. <laughs> so when you go through all those stages, the testimonial is terrible data. I mean, we all need them. Someone saw me this week and she said, I saw your testimonials on Google. So, and they were very good. Came to see and I went, wow, I'm really glad you're here. Um, it is the worst, most inaccurate data because there's all the missing data. I don't know how many people hated me <laughs> who were just unimpressed. And I don't know who didn't call me. So that's the missing data. So selection bias is selection bias. we all need to really, really acknowledge. And um, I think it, we have a unique kind of uh, profession differences over here in, in Australia with I'm not too sure how aware you are of exercise physiologists in the UK. And then there's physical therapists or physios and there's right. massage therapists and then there's osteos, chiros. So we have already okay. these quote unquote brands or oh, there's right, ideas yeah. of what maybe the service might be if we were to have consultations based on marketing and public perception. Um, yes. So already people come in with these ideas of what the service might look like so there's a pre-framing there's um lots of non-specific contextual effects beforehand and we don't often talk about these in maybe some case reviews or when looking at our results and how that is mm -hmm. one of the the biggest contextual factors that there is if someone has an idea of what kind of treatments they might receive 
from us within our scope of practice, then already they're geared towards that. And we, we wouldn't see the people that, you know, as an exercise physiologist, I wouldn't see the people that hate exercise necessarily. The the GP or their partner forced them to, to come into the the studio. So I think all these things are very helpful and, and humbling for us to, to recognize in each and every encounter, but they're not really discussed. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's always, yeah, you just remember who didn't come. In fact, I, I tend not to, I try not to take credit when it's gone well. I find that quite important. So when, I mean, we've all had that experience of that perfect client where they come in, they've had something for years, they've tried all the other professions and you do one or two maybe like a, like a nice back massage or something and they go oh it's fixed and it just I, one guy genuinely had had a pain uh around the intercostals following a pulmonary embolism 10 years earlier <laughs> and he just had this pain in there and uh we had one massage and it was done and he thinks i did something magic. i, I have no idea why it hurt for 10 years. I don't know why I stopped it. I wouldn't have expected to be able to. I thought, well, I'll give it a go. <laughs> so he thinks I'm fantastic, which is nice. But at the same time, I'm not um, I'm not going to take credit for that. Do you know what I mean? I'm not going to let it go to my head. <laughs> you know, I go, okay, great result. Don't know. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't me so many reasons why things can work. So maybe it's helpful to also recognize that when things don't go to plan. I think uh, we get a lot of people, I myself definitely notice um, my mind kind of blaming me when things don't go to plan and not recognizing all these other factors as well outside of our control in a, in a clinical mm. encounter. There's a lot more to it. So I feel like it's, um, it's helpful. And perhaps what, how would you, make sense of all these factors the the classic placebo non-specific contextual effects what might be some helpful ways of of framing that because as you said there's so many factors involved and we're not taking credit for all the outcomes and all the positive ones and yeah yeah that is a that is a tricky one i i i think grounding ourselves in, in in thinking, well, okay, I may be able to help. I hope I can help. If it seems to work, I don't know if it was me. Uh, but I, t- I don't know if this will be for everybody. I tend to contemplate the, the, the ones that don't work too well. I try to keep them close. And I also try to keep close all the things that I've definitely screwed up. And I have screwed up so many times. I've had so, um, you know... <laughs> You have that moment where you're explaining something to someone and they look you square in the eye and you go, God, I just lost them. That's it. And I'm not going to get them back. And that is, oh, 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 there was a lovely little paper. Um, got shared, Paul McCambridge again, shared it this week. Um, and it was a piece of work by um, Rossentini, who I'm only just finding out about. Have you come across? Beautiful little paper about ruptures in the therapeutic relationship. Now, this actually comes from, it's an idea that comes from psychotherapy. And they said that broadly, they come into two two types. One is withdrawal, which is the one I just described. uh, And the other one is confrontation. 
And what they accept and understand in psychotherapy is that these are inevitable. Our goal is not to try and remove these, but actually if you meet them when they happen <laughs> and tackle them openly and honestly, you actually strengthen the relationship. And we know, don't we? We know that a, a better therapeutic relationship is, um, is beneficial. So, and, and, and within days of reading that, I did it. <laughs> I caught myself. I think the, the first thing I think you do, like, like with any cognitive intervention, where you're trying to improve something about yourself in that respect is, is, is you have to first notice it's happening. And once you notice it happening, a few weeks down the line, you'll notice it when it's about to happen or just as it's happened, you can think and you might just give yourself one or two seconds to breathe and go, right, I'm not going to just, you know, you just carry on talking. Um, I go, no, I'm going to, I'm going to acknowledge what you just said. And I'm going to do something to repair that rupture that we just witnessed <laughs> and, and hope. Because so that was a nice little, that was a nice little gem. So, uh, so uh, it's um, the, the idea of a rupture it's, can be quite intimidating for when starting out, like if there is a disagreement and then as a form of dealing with mm -hmm. that, unpleasant anxiety of how to handle someone disclosing something if it's a disagreement or um a major trauma i think one of the examples i'm bringing up on on my end was um the patient saying my sister died suddenly last week and then the clinician goes how are your new exercises going yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like not really recognizing and empathizing and making space yeah. like acknowledging that's shit. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> ah, I mean, right. and, I, yeah. and I think, I think do that, do those screw ups and you're not going to, you're not going to get the hang of this in a month, you know, do it. Uh, and, and then just, just reflect on it. Go, oh shit. I said that. Oh, I said that. And then gradually you'll not do it. You know, it takes time. These are difficult skills. So I certainly don't think I have it. The only thing I think I've gained, um, and I think I gained this after lockdown was I was just a bit more comfortable with clients because it's such a weird situation is that you're in a room with one other person and you're some sort of expert and they've got some sort of story and somehow you have to navigate this to be good. It's an unnatural, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a weird and it's an intense situation. And I think it takes a long time depending on what you like, maybe some people crack it quite quickly to, to really listen to someone. That's not, that doesn't come easy because we're panicking going, Oh shit, I've got to think about this. I've got to think about that. I've got to make notes. I've got to, I've got to come up with something positive to say and all these things stop you listening. So and I think it just takes, I think that's one of the few things that you get from experience. Okay. I think experience is, is a, is a, is a, is a slightly tricky area uh which if, if can i talk i'll talk is that all right can i talk about that for a minute absolutely <laughs> so really really interesting um that, that one of our one of our uh, evidence-based you know venn diagram bubbles is our clinical experience and it's it's the one i think we probably 
think about the least or the one that we, if we're not careful, we can override the other two. You know, we can override the research or we can meet the client expectations and go. And then before you know it, you're actually saying, I know what works, which is which is not how we, This that's not evidence-based practice, is it? So we, I think we can delude ourselves quite easily. So I think a useful critique of experience that I like to think about is if experience of anything made us good, then everybody who'd been driving 30 years would be an outstanding driver, which is not what we see. The only way you become a good driver is by getting trained by expert drivers and realizing, oh God, because what we can spot everyone else's bad driving, we don't see our own bias right there. So you need to be taught, you need to be tested, you need to be pushed um, and, and you need to correct. But we, we, we have this kind of idea that we develop a, uh, an expert intuition. And I think, I think it's, there's, there is work from Daniel Kahneman, who's my super favorite psychologist, uh, Nobel Prize winner for his work with the late Amos Versky um, on what was called behavioral economics, which is what we think of now as cognitive biases. Um, and he talks about the sort of expert intuition and when you've got it and when you haven't. And I think this could be really helpful to us. Um, so for a helpful definition, intuition could be described as some, an opinion or idea that we really feel is true. So we just, that's that, we just really think it's true. Um, but of course, if we think about that logically, that doesn't necessarily accurately reflect reality that in itself, you know, it's just, it's just a feeling we have. Now we develop intuition, it has an adaptive value. So we've evolved to have it either genetically or a genetic predisposition to get it. So an example of one that we would develop is when somebody walks up to you and you have a bad feeling about them, you don't know what it is. You just go, I just got a bad feeling about this. That's an intuition. Now it's not magic. What happens is, is when you think about it afterwards, you might remember that there was actually something they did. And one thing could be what's called a witness check. So they look around, they look left and right, and then they come over and walk to you. And you didn't clock that, but unconsciously you did. <laughs> so you've gone, okay, they've just checked for witnesses and then came and spoke to me. That's why I've got a bad feeling about this person. So it's a kind of an ability we've got and it has a value, but it's not necessarily accurate so when we get the feeling about a patient you think we have to be very very careful here and for me the very useful insight that Kahneman brought to this is if you if you meet a world-class chess player um, and you take them on and assuming you're as bad at it as I am they'll they'll thrash you but interestingly, they won't think about it. They can look at the board and just literally do a move without actually consciously thinking about it because they've done the 10,000 hours and they can kind of see it all and they don't really have to process it. They'll just go, bub, 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 and you're done. Um, but in order to get that intuition, according to Karma, 
you need three things. And the first one is you have to have a stable environment. So a chessboard has a limited number of possibilities and it is stable over time. It has to be repeatable so that you can go around the same thing round and round again and it gets repeated so often you can now do it automatically without thinking consciously about it. But And the one that's often overlooked, the third one, is you have to have immediate feedback. Now, if you get all of those together over 10,000 hours or whatever, you can develop a genuine expert intuition about something. And there's a great story that's something along the lines of, um, I think firemen seem to know the exact moment to run out of the building. And when they interviewed somebody after one, they couldn't work. And eventually it came down to, oh yeah, my feet were hot. <laughs> So there was no processing, just the feet were hot, they ran out because there's some chain reaction that that relates to that makes sense. So, and and one way to think, uh, there was an example that came with this, if I forget where, was if you think about, let's say radiology or anesthetist, you have two very different types of jobs. So if you're doing, if you're a radiologist, you're looking at all these images, you're writing up the notes and you're sending it off. So it's kind of repeatable, but you're not really getting the feedback. I don't really know how it works. I'm guessing you don't really get any immediate feedback on what your judgment was. Whereas an anesthetist, if you got if you're just if you're doing surgery and your anesthetist has been going around this for, for thousands of hours and just says, hold on, something's wrong, or something doesn't feel right, I think everyone stops. <laughs> you can kind of just see, I think it helps just. So to me, we don't have a stable environment when we see clients. There's so many possibilities. Um, it's not repeatable. It's too diverse. And we don't get immediate feedback. So I, I push back on the idea that we can become expert in just judging you know how what what's wrong with this person how to do it that you know you have to go back to your clinical reasoning you have to go back to what's the evidence you have to go back to listening to what this person's saying and all those things so to me that's just a quite a loud voice that kind of keeps me on the ground and go if i have an intuition there's a good chance it's wrong is that all right <laughs> yeah so that was a long I hope that's not. It's valuing the uh, the urges, perhaps the the senses, the perception that we might have some idea of what might be helpful for a particular person in front of us, and we're kind of responding in real time to their responses, and they're responding to us, and we've got our own memories and associations built up with lots and lots of practice. Uh, but then at the same time with that feeling you can at least i think become aware of it and then know as well the limitations that it's not necessarily objective and there might be some other factors involved and that's where we need some other systems in place like kahneman proposes and being aware mm. of this kind of fast versus slow thinking and yes, be having yeah. some supervisors some some mentors some people to bounce ideas off some help so we have a, another set of eyes i really loved your analogy of driving like we might think yeah. we're the best driver in the world i'm pretty sure there's there's been some research i've, I've heard 
of like rating yourself as a as a driver if you're above average and everyone thinks they're above average but well that that's a general rule isn't it everyone thinks they're above average at just about everything like is is, is your sense of humor good is your your intelligence no one says they're average intelligence everyone says oh no i'm i have to be a little bit above yeah that's just a yeah that's a <laughs> that's a it's a it's a comforting a comforting bias uh, but you can you can hold it lightly can't you? you you can if you can get more comfortable with really not knowing what's going on and i don't it's not that it's not that easy to do and and it takes time and you just go i don't really know well let's try some stuff and let's work together and i think the more you put yourself up as the expert to the person in front of you the more you're likely to fall down on it um and I think that's probably why I, you know, I, you can you can look at a hundred Facebook groups, and someone says, "Oh, I've got a client that's got this," and everyone just wades in with, "Oh, you need to do this," and you go, "God, this, this is the worst place. These are the worst conversations. There's no, um, everyone's just asserting their own sense of rightness." Which is a trait we all we have it, you know. That's that's human. Um, so I say, knowledge is human, and let's try and push it out. <laughs> let's push it out of the clinical environment because, and just go. No, I, I don't know what. Um, uh, I don't know what it is. I don't know why the guy with the pulmonary embolism, <laughs> his pain went after a massage and never came back. I'll never know. Uh, but I'm all right with that. I don't mind. Um, so be. I think really, I think embracing uncertainty can be our friend here. Um, and I think it, it gives us a freedom uh, to just to gently explore things. Uh, yeah. I like how you mentioned Paul McCambridge. So he's come over yes. to, to our shores, I think pre-COVID now. It's been ages. Um, he's He loves saying playing around with oh, the rehab. Yeah. So it's looking at it and as you said we, we can still explore we can test out a few things and have some confidence that more than likely we can do something that helps but already that language is so much mm. more uh, collaborative co-creative and humble and honest i think people i think we underestimate how people would perceive us being that upfront and authentic and honest that we're not really sure but we know how to help you Mm. yeah I think perhaps it's difficult isn't it when someone comes in and this is definitely one of the things that I struggled with in the first year of practice was I definitely got the impression that everybody came in thought I was way more educated than I am in the field our, our training in the UK for this stuff is not that high it's pretty pretty low um, and I thought hang on so, so I've really reacted to that and gone i need to learn a lot more this is not good enough in, in my opinion but, well yeah that, that's not an absolute um that i i realized a need and that need hasn't stopped so i'm still doing flipping courses um um but the, the I, you know i've never i mean I, i've always worked in private so I, i've never underestimated the, the the amount of money they hand over. Okay, this is someone's money. They've worked for this and they've come here with a problem. I have to do 
a lot for that. You know, this is this is a this is the, the gravity of that sat on me um, at the same time as the well, it's the crossing the chasm crisis. I guess I was an early, <laughs> I guess I was an early career chasm crosser in that respect because I, I in, in fact, it was probably easier for me to cross the chasm because I wasn't so invested. When I went to see Peter O'Sullivan three or five years ago, I became really good friends with uh, a chiropractor. And he'd been onto this stuff. For, he'd, he'd qualified tear 15 or so years earlier. And he used to make no end of money. Uh, so he, he said his, his best ever week was 120 patients. <laughs> rack them and crack them. He had two rooms. And he doesn't make anything like he used to because he's gone, this is not how we help people. Uh, this is dependency. This is, this is not based on a sound theory. And he's a smart guy, and he's 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 got much more into you when he's well, he's into evidence based practice now, and he's taken the hit. We go, wow, he was a lot more invested than I was. He paid a lot more for his education. He had a lot more of income to lose, and he's doing it. I really respect that, and I have a lot of respect for people who who had to make that leap and had a lot more to lose than I did. So in a way, I was quite quite easy, and um, yeah, I. I, I there was something that you were talking to Baz the other week, weren't you? Baz Ashley. Yes. God, it was so lovely to hear his voice. I'd never heard him before. I'd only just, um, I'd just like every time he pipes up and says anything. Um, and he he was, he was, he was reflecting on something uh, that spoke to this. Oh no, I totally lost my thread. I'm sorry, Daniel. <laughs> completely lost my thread. It comes back. This is an excuse to have a roundtable with him next time. Yes. Yeah. There's, uh, yeah. there's that crossing the chasm. That's like the the moments, perhaps where it would be harder if you had already invested. So that's that sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. There's the yeah. It, the system doesn't incentivize, perhaps more of a person centered approach where we need. To actually deal with the human, not just the, the yeah. body part. Actually, it was on the incentives because he he accepts that because he works for himself and he's not being demanded upon by a clinic saying you need this level of retention. Um, he just sees people a few times and and he can, in a way, you can just be, you can be more ethical, can't you, if you're not, and this is the difficult thing. And I do appreciate that people don't have that. Uh, don't always have that option. I, I, I did hear from someone recently who said she had worked in a, as a massage therapist in a chiropractic clinic. And I think for other practitioners there, there were some form of sanctions if you weren't getting retention rates. There was something. And went, so she left, which is, you know, um, so that's more extreme, isn't it? But, but, um, but it, it, it's easier. It's easier for me to be more purist about this because I'm not. I'm not earning for a clinic. I'm by myself, and I'm kind of financially stable enough that um, I can tick over. All right, I won't. If I have a quiet week, I'm not. I'm not going to go hungry. We're all right. So, <laughs> um, but but I don't. But that's a kind of a 
a privilege, isn't it? So I suppose I'm. It's easier to be a bit more purist. Yes, um, and you have full autonomy, less external pressure. So I think yeah. we, myself included, I have a lot of privileges working for myself and not having KPIs or um, oh, yeah. you know micromanagement around. Hypothetically, if and reflecting on when you kind of quote unquote crossed the chasm at the time. Mm. Um, if you were in that situation, or um, I guess the question is, what what kind of helped you be able to to start applying and have that context to explore this? Um, the, and the reason I ask is, oftentimes in private practice, there are these very real constraints, as we've been mentioning, of um, it's not really incentivized, and people do feel the financial pressures to practice a certain way within a a more systemized framework that funnily enough might still provide some results. So if we were looking at maybe some facilitators for those in, in private practice, respecting all these non-specific contextual effects, talking about what we've been talking about so far, what, what might be some of the, yeah, the drivers, the helpful facilitators when crossing. God. That is a tough one. Okay. <laughs> oh wow. I I don't think I know. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I know. It's a really interesting thing to think about. Because you, you you jump, but you don't know where you're going to land. Perhaps that's that's why it's such a sod. Uh, um. Finding people that think the same way is so important here. And for a long time, I didn't because I was so fed up with the industry. I was so disappointed with the professional associations. Um, I went, sod this, I'll just go and do my own thing. Um, and, I and I paid a price for that, I think, because I was on my own for too long. It was only in the last couple of years. It was the, it was one of the fortunes of of the pandemic, was there was obviously a lot more online communication amongst communities, and I got to know a few more people really well, um, and realised that oh, there are actually people in England who are, which I didn't think for a while. I didn't. I couldn't find them. I didn't. I wasn't looking hard enough. Um, so I, I've kind of met a lot of people who are doing such good work and uh, been sort of welcomed into the fold a little bit. Um, yeah, that's the one for me, I think. And you need mentors. You need mentors. That uh, That's something we're missing, I think. I mean, you, you have, funnily enough, that's you, that anybody who's a counsellor has a supervision session, you know, once, twice a month. You, you have to. You couldn't possibly. So... Uh, you, you you have to because you know it's all right when you've got all the stuff in your head and then you go and talk to somebody else about what you're doing with the client and you really go, oh no I've done it wrong don't you um and i'm kind of informally doing it with people i know it's just i just know enough people i just we have a phone chat quickly and go what do you think and i go and it just happened this week and i went i've just missed something so obvious i went oh, okay yeah it's all right i can save that one it's, <laughs> it's all right but yeah we need to find each other I think in, and, uh, and and benefit from each other's knowledge, but just that 
I don't know. Some people can think really clearly on their own. I can't. I, I have to talk it over with someone. Otherwise, I'm, I'm destined to, to miss. Um, in fact, I learned that one as a software developer. At the time, I used to smoke. And I'd be smashing my head against a problem. And you go outside and you have a cigarette. And you talk to the other colleague. And before you'd finished it, you cracked it. And go, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so it's just that that conversation. So, I, I, yeah, I'd, I'd like to have more contact with more people about these things. And I think there are some people who are running mentorship schemes and things like that. But at the same time... Is that value in that reflection? Free. I think, sorry? Is that value in the, the reflection space, I feel? Mm. And also putting my hand up uh, as, a, as a paid kind of service that we offer with our, our mentoring. Mm. I, I definitely do agree, though, that the biggest thing, if I was to reflect on the context of musculoskeletal therapy is compulsory supervision. You're right. I think it should be mm-hmm. like, if yeah. I feel like a supervisors should be paid for their time, but at the same time, it should be normalized and part of the training. No, it's like yeah. incorporated. Yeah, yeah. And I'm saying it being someone that profits off people paying yeah. for mentoring, I'd be so much happier if I knew that the entire yeah. system has that in place, almost like you mentioned with, with counsellors. Yeah. It's like yes. just a part of the practice. Yeah. It's just part of it. Ah, oh, that makes much more sense. Yeah, no, I like that. No, I'll budge on that one. It's actually brilliant. I think, do you know what? I, I, I've seen some suspect ones. Uh, do you mm. know what? That's what I've seen some suspect ones on offer here. I thought, no, that's 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 a financial project. Same as the you know, you get all the business ones as well. So many ones going, oh, there's, yes, there's so many. Not naming any names, yeah. obviously, but there's this yeah. idea perhaps of that clinical practice supervisor. Um, what seems to be most helpful is ones that can make sense of all these factors outside of our control and mm. can have that humility. So they're not the guru expert um, yeah. and they're not just kind of selling a system because they're also part of another business mentoring kind of project going on in the background. Or yeah. I guess maybe this is where intuition might be helpful. You get the sense that there's some clash of values. We'll say. Yeah. yeah. There's some intentions you can see maybe reading with, with yeah. the, the way that um, some recommendations are, are recommended. Yeah. I, I, I mean, there's a lot of people piping up at the moment who are very confidently coaching or, or offering to coach or business mentor massage therapists and, and similar. There's suddenly seen a lot of it. <laughs> you know, it just keeps coming through your feed. I didn't ask for this. You don't know me at all, Facebook. Uh, but it occurs to me that that mistake you can make as a therapist of thinking, well, this person got better. I know why it's because of all that, you know, it's because of what I did. It's because that it's the same mistake you can make as, you know, if, if someone's qualification to teach you how to develop your business is the fact that they have a successful business is the same silly mistake. It's the same naivety. No, you having a successful business does not qualify you to teach someone to run a successful business because we don't know how much of that was luck, the location you're in, the thousand things that will influence 
why a stranger you've never met picks up the phone and calls you. You don't know. Now, if you've got a solid track record of developing other people's businesses and recorded all the ones that didn't, and then you've got data, that would qualify you. But that's not what you see. So maybe that's, yeah, it's the same. It's the same naivety you see in therapists, I think. And we can apply the same ideas and principles within that of acknowledging the biases, the survivorship Mm. bias, the selection bias and memory, fallibility of memory. And we only remember the the success stories and not recognizing the impact of how for any advice, it needs to be uh, placed within a specific context that can be quite different in terms of demographics, in terms of uh, client expectations, so um, Mm. professions as well might be different in terms of the expectations someone coming in for a a massage compared to an exercise or personal training session already. Yeah. That's actually a massive issue here, I think, is there's there's a huge variability well, there's variability in, in qualifications, but I think there's a huge variability in what uh, the members of the public think it is or think it can or should do. Um, and that is difficult because I think you have to try and get your head around that as quickly as you can when the person's come in. Um, and I know everyone says, ask what their expectations are. And I do that, but I still find it difficult because I think sometimes I still expect you just to <laughs> just to sort of know and you know there's some stuff that you can tackle quite easily like you know i've been told i've got all these knots can you do that and you go well all right, we can we can we can navigate that um uh i i remember a woman came in she sat down she'd really trashed her shoulder falling against a concrete post you know about 18 months ago She'd been through various, and she came and looked me square in the eye and said, I don't do exercise. I went, okay, <laughs> this is going to be good. So now I've got to try and get someone who clearly needs to move, doesn't want to move, wants me to fix it. And went, well, I can't do that. But so, you know, but then sometimes I feel a bit better when I try and take the pressure off and go, it's, it's not, maybe it's not up to me to sort this person out. And I think that's, if I find that helpful. You can just let go a little bit and go, maybe I'm not the right person. Maybe I'm not good enough for this person. Maybe I don't know enough. Maybe they're not ready for the answer that would help them best. Too many maybes, but just come off a bit and stop and don't fret too much about that need <laughs> to go, I got to solve every problem that comes through the door and just lets him go. I think Jason Silvernail said something several years ago that he felt a lot better when he took the pressure off himself to fix everyone. He go, yeah, quite hard to do, uh, but uh, but it lightens the load a bit. That's a that's always a that's a really tricky one. That's something I've been finding really challenging actually, or maybe maybe get slightly better at is have have you gone through that phase where someone comes in and they're completely full of all these bad ideas that they've been told, be it their posture, be it, you know, all these kind of things, or, you know, I don't sit correctly, or or they're full of guilt going, oh, no, I don't stretch enough. 
And I definitely had a phase of being a smart ass, going, well, you don't have to worry about that. There's no evidence. For it. And I, and God, it doesn't work. Bloody hell, it doesn't work. You, you, I think occasionally you get the right person. You go, hang on, I can just tell them stuff and they'll go in and it's going to, but not often. I think whatever beliefs someone turns up with, they will leave with almost all of them intact. I think you can do very little to change that. You just need to drop a seed. And where I absolutely failed for a long time, and I failed in business on that front, and I definitely feel like I failed clients, was I was trying to get it all done in one session. I was the I was the non-dependency, super ethical uh guy <laughs> you know uh, and i'm not bullshitting you and i'm not and, and i've gone that didn't work because they didn't come back and i said no all you need to know is this 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 and this and you'll be fine they didn't come back. I went, no they needed me for three or four sessions so we could start bringing about some change so we could start shifting a few ideas um and then you realize actually we're in the we're in the behavior change business aren't we and that is way harder than anything we might have thought we were in I mean yeah that's yeah embrace embrace that embrace that embrace it that's really difficult um and we'll start from the ground up humble <laughs> that's it it's I think this leads beautifully to a related question I had so many questions but we might have to save it for a part two but this one in, in relation to we're talking about maybe it's not helpful to immediately challenge someone's belief or the misinformation mm. that they've been given um, oftentimes online or in person through sometimes even clinicians. How about when that person that we're talking to is a colleague? Mm. Yeah. This is something that I personally wrestle with as well i think in terms of my there's a, i guess there's a few assumptions that uh i need to be aware of which is assuming that people generally want to stay up to date with science-based practice and right it's kind of our duty of care to yeah. do that and to update and change the way we practice yeah. over the years um, so it does take a, a bit of energy, I feel, um, in this age of misinformation. And, and we talked about how it's not even really incentivized by the system to update your practice, even sometimes vice versa with the, the Kyrie you mentioned who took Peter's course where he was a lot mm. more profitable when mm. ignorance was bliss. Yeah. So how can yeah. we have helpful conversations, interactions and um, with fellow clinicians who maybe have yet to cross the chasm? That's the one, isn't it? That's the real beauty. <laughs> uh, actually, do you know what? I just happened to catch um, Jack Chu talking to somebody on a podcast this week. Have you, seen, have you heard uh, uh, Oliver Thompson's Words Matter? Of course, yes. Oh, 
bloody hell, that's good. And Jack and Dave Newell was on it. And they were talking about this kind of thing exactly. And then, and, and, and he just raised a really, really nice point because it, it depends on the context. Um, and, if, and he relayed some particular story of uh, I, I, during the Ebola outbreak from 10 years ago. I don't know if you caught hold. I, I, this is all news to me. Um, there was a group, or a chiropractic group, saying that they needed to be doing something to help with it. I don't, I can't even know the logic of it. Chiropractic for Ebola. Okay, that doesn't get a seat at the table. Like that, you have, because the stakes are very high. You can't, <laughs> you can't, you can't be doing that. Um, so, so you kind of have a, I sort of see this little bit of a spectrum where, where, you know, there's a, there's a Peter Sullivan quote that gets re shared period, usually by Lars Avermary. He very often shares this one. This is, um, you know, we have to call out bullshit because it harms. And you go, yes. But on the other hand, if, if, if two people go into a room and one does Reiki on the other and they pay them for it, what business is it of mine? So I also have that in my head. So again, I think so the way I helpfully now would call it, it's the context. You go, well, okay, but if if because I'm in massage therapy world and we are a bit in limbo, and I think we're we're very much in limbo in this country. We don't I don't think we quite know what we are. Um if we want to seat at the table with healthcare and be regarded as plausibly part of it, then we have to talk the right language. We have to use the same critical thinking. We have to be accountable and we have to defend our position. And we have to drop things that aren't plausible. You know, we, we, we've got to, um, we have to do more than update our narrative. That's a slippery one. I think we, that's been a huge push. Certainly, I'm sure in, in, in your world and mine, as um, we update the narratives to get rid of the crap. And I just think that's not far enough. That's a, that's a okay, we're going to stop lying. Good. We're all agreed on that. Let's update the narrative. But if you're not careful, you can justify anything by updating the narrative. And that, that grates on me a bit. Um, I, I came up with a little thinky experiment for that one. I, I, I came up with this idea of, of ABS, which is actual bullshit therapy. And I wrote a little thing about it, which is um, I just invented a therapy uh, using a lot of words that part made up and said, oh, it does this, and you can train in it, and it's trademarked to my views. It's just, it's just it's a satire, really. And, and then I updated the narrative of it to say that it's probably nonspecific, but we get da 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 So you let go of the principles that ABS had, and now we just update the narrative so you can still defend it in a, in a clinical setting. And to my mind, if a therapy you have if your reasoning for permitting a therapy in by its narrative permits my ABS therapy in, there's something wrong with the way you're thinking about it. Does that make sense? It's a really great so, thought experiment. Yeah. So I, I, I shorten that then with the idea, it's very simply, 
if we, based on what we know today, would we invent it? Now, I find that a really grounding way to think about this. So if you take, let's take EP, let's take physiotherapy, let's take massage, acupuncture, uh, chiropractic. Also, let's lay them all out. Now, let's remove them all from human knowledge. Uh, and it's completely gone. No one has any memory of it. Well, I think in a few weeks, somebody's going to pay someone else for a massage. Like that will come back because that's just grooming. Like that will come back in some form. Uh, aspects of physiotherapy and exercise physiology would come back because you study these patterns and you go, oh, hang on, if you do this, that gets stronger, that helps. It just it, the same real world would present itself and eventually the same curiosities would emerge and the same studies would in one form or another come out. So they come back. What doesn't come back is chiropractic because a person invented it. Osteopathy doesn't come back because a person invented it. Acupuncture doesn't come back because it got invented. They were not based on observable scientific realities, if you see what I mean. So something else might come back, but only if someone makes them up. So to me, and I take a privileged position by being in this purist <laughs> angle, um, uh, the ones that wouldn't come back, we don't need. Uh, the ones that would, we can use. So, yeah, if, if, if based on what we know, would you invent it? So you wouldn't say, right, we don't know much about it. We've now studied the body. We've now done all the MRIs. What we're going to do is push needles into people because that will cure these ailments. And you go, well, you wouldn't do that because the narrative is in and of itself not a sound justification. Is that, is that, does that come across well? Does that make sense? Not well, does it make sense? I just, I think about this stuff a lot. I don't... <laughs> yeah, it's the, the strong meaning effects within a historical, cultural, societal context that a lot of the treatments seem to stem from. Mm. I'm not sure, though, if, if I was incentivized to stick a needle into someone, I'd probably mm. invent something along those lines within the current systems that we have. I, yeah. I've, I so love the, the thought experiment though. It really helps us see um, what the most helpful things are. And if we don't have to do other things to, we can kind of mm. almost, we, we, it's not saying that we will never, ever, ever need them in any particular context for any person ever again, but maybe mm. we can just spend more time with the things that okay. matter okay. most. Let, I'll give you an example. I think that really, I think it speaks exactly what you're saying is quite nearby. I uh, live local to me. There's uh, I was talking to a woman who is an anesthetist in an NHS pain clinic and they are underfunded. And she said it's um, stressful and bloody hard work. And she said about 10 years ago, they lost their psychologists. They were taken out of the equation to save money. So they are dealing with the daily challenge dealing with people in severe pain in the hospital setting okay that's real okay now we okay <laughs> that's more real than i have to deal with um and she said they've got some acupuncture that goes on for some conditions for which there is slightly better evidence it might have been neck pain i can't remember and i thought i do sympathize and i do get that 
Um, that's a very specific context. And, but it, it's only there because it was there. Like it, it's, it's, it's only, I mean, if we. It was an option. There, 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 sorry? It was an option. It was an option. Absolutely yeah. right. Now I agree. See, see, this is where I get a little bit torn. I, it's, you're absolutely right. And, and in that moment, maybe a helpful one. The problem is, it's only there because it got a free pass years ago. Somehow it kind of wheedled its way in and, and it gets it gets a louder voice than the research would permit or the biological plausibility would permit. So in a way, it becomes a bit like the open label placebo. So, so one of the common misunderstandings is... Oh, you know, placebo is brilliant because you can even tell someone it's a placebo and it still works. You go, no, it, they got primed. They gave, given a placebo. It helped with back pain. And then they got told, the, the, you know, it was, it was a study that was done here. Um, uh, if I, I, I keep want to keep using the placebo because it's helping with my back pain. Well, it's no longer a placebo. They've been primed. You see what I mean? So, so you, you get knotted up in so. So when you think about the ethics of an open-label placebo, it gets a little bit more complicated because, well, well, it's only working because we lied to you in the first place. And I think that's not good enough. And I don't think it's where we should be aspiring. I appreciate you might have a context where you go, okay, today, now it's this. But should our goal not be in 50 years from now, we're not doing that? And I think if we keep saying that the updated narrative is sufficient, we're not going to get to that point. That's what I'm thinking. So again, it's a purist point of view that I'm afforded to have, <laughs> but it's it's a way of thinking about it. But I'll, I'd love to chat with anybody who wants to um, mull that over because I find that a, a kind of just an interesting, an interesting topic. So yeah, so there's the pragmatism in the moment, and there's what's the bigger questions where are we heading with this and if we're not careful we can use pain science we can use biopsychosocial and we can use narratives to justify any silly treatment we want which would then be basing on our experience which we know is desperately flawed did i just do a callback and bring that together <laughs> completed the circle that's great i think we went on a journey yeah, I love that. yes it was great and yeah, it really reflects on if, like, what kind of direction would we much rather be heading towards and how can our behaviours in this particular moment influence that mm -hmm. to an extent that it gets influenced. I think the other thing is um, we don't have a patient voice in this discussion. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. That's something yeah. that uh, I definitely have um, mistakenly gone around with saying, you know, what is the best treatment? And it's like, oh, also shared decision making here. Great for yes. experiment though. I, I agree with everything that yeah. your biases definitely align with mine. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, there's a phrase that you hear a lot, drives me nuts. People say, I love having my biases challenged. And, and that to me itself is a mistake because no one loves getting their biases. You only love it if it, you've got no stock in it. Like, so, you, so if I said to you, 
Daniel, I just seen this study, like the way the sarcomeres work on a muscle contract, it's not quite the way you thought. It's kind of that we go, oh, okay, you know, I didn't know that. That's interesting. And if I came to you and said, hey, Daniel, look, I just read this meta-analysis. It says, um, uh, if you push a spinal vertebra into position, you actually cure liver cancer. You're going to throw up and go, no. And then, then the bias that will kick in will be motivated skepticism. That's where you go, give me that paper. I'm going to find all the flaws in it. Not the papers of the stuff I agree with, the ones that you're bringing me that disagree. So it's like, it's, it's fallacious just to say, I love having the biases challenge. No, you don't, because it's difficult. It's emotional. Uh, and, and it's a horror show because it quakes your structured sense of the world, <laughs> which is why we get so bloody defensive and argumentative uh, with one another. Um, yeah. Amazing. Chris, really love this uh, exploration and yeah, help me even deeply reflect on some philosophical questions that we don't often discuss in, in a clinical context. I think we can get so um, uh, zoomed in on. Yeah, you, you've helped me think about some stuff, actually. And, and, and actually, thank you for the, the, the work that you do, because this, the, you have, you've created a lovely space for just relaxed conversation um, and that's a credit to you so keep that up it's brilliant thank you appreciate that and for those who would love to find out a bit more about your upcoming projects and more yeah. about your work where can we find you yeah my well my website's movemassagepro.com um, which i'm quite pleased with at the moment um the the cool stuff i'm doing at the moment is uh i've joined up with movement therapy education uh, which is based out of Birmingham, but is also in Manchester and Leeds. And there's a few of us that come to, I was absolutely delighted to get invited into this, this fold. And myself, and I think you've met Matt Scarsbrook. Uh, he and I have been asked to teach an entry-level sports massage course in the South of England, uh, I think Reading. Um, and we're just taking the principle um, Let's start entry-level training from the ground up where we remove all the rubbish. We just align ourselves with the evidence and we teach students new to the industry um, what science-based practice looks like so that when they go out into the world and they get all these ridiculous courses fired at them and all these ridiculous modalities, they'll just have a bit more about them to tell which ones could be good for them. And which was and, and hope because it's, it's, it I'm tired of just rowing the people. It doesn't work. Let's just stick a flag in the ground and go. Okay, let's. And there's a few of us in the in, in the in the group doing this. We're just going to teach the best quality stuff that we know, and we'll keep evolving that as we learn more. So that's that's a real pleasure to be involved in. So I'll be doing that. Amazing and so. About time you've got into the education world, I think, with all the yeah. courses that you've taken. So it's really awesome to hear. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I taught when I was having a crack at the PhD. I used to teach undergraduates at uh, university in psychology, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it, to the detriment of the research I was supposed to have been doing. So this I'm probably, <laughs> probably heading the right way. I'm also speaking at two or three conferences, I think, in Eastern Europe. It's all on Zoom, unfortunately. Um, so I'll, I'll have information about that soon. I've said yes to a lot of things, and now I've got to do the work. So that'll be 
I'll, I'll post that up somewhere. Love it. Awesome. Keep us in the in the loop, and I'll add that to the the show notes as well. So, Tris, cool. mate, thank you so much for the deep dive and the deep and meaningful chats. It's been awesome. Thank you for inviting me. It was a real pleasure, real honor. Thank you.